When I um, read this letter to the church in Laodicea, I feel a bit like how I feel when I walk in on a parent disciplining his child. Um, like not really sure like how to act or, or where to look. Like do I just do I just kind of start looking at the wall, like pretending like I'm not hearing what's being said? Like, oh, uh, yeah, it's really interesting to me how evenly that wall is, is painted, you know, or, or do, I, do I noddingly affirm uh, the discipline that's happening, looking at the child like, well, I don't know what you did, but shame on you, or, or, do, I, or do I look at the kid with empathy and just like, hey, dude, I'm sorry. That's a little bit how I feel when I read Jesus's words to this church in Laodicea, because his words make me very uncomfortable. I mean, his words are pretty harsh. I don't think I'm alone in feeling a little bit uncomfortable that Jesus, who is grace, we, we saw that a couple weeks ago, Jesus, who is grace, Jesus, the one who told the story, not, not just told the story, but made up the story of the prodigal son, Jesus, the one who invited outcasts and prostitutes to dine with him, looks at these church people and says, you nauseate me, cross-stitch that. I mean, it's, it's a little bit shocking, right? It's almost like that billboard that you see on the turnpike that says, you think it's hot here, Jesus, right? Except Jesus actually said this. Jesus actually said this thing about spitting us out. That makes me really uncomfortable, and I'm not quite sure what to do with that. I remember as a child growing up in the church, and, and whether you grew up in the church or not, this is probably one of those verses that you know. Like this is one that kind of everyone has heard about the hot or cold and the lukewarm and the spitting out. Like it, we know this. And I remember as a child growing up in church hearing that and thinking, oh man, it, it, it must be better uh, for me um, if I'm not completely sold out, if I'm not completely on fire for Jesus, I might as well be not a Christian because it seems like that's better. It seems like that's what Jesus is saying. And so as I even began studying this for the purpose of us talking about it today, um, I had a lot of baggage with this text. And so I, so I had to kind of step back and say, okay, what is happening here in the book of Revelation? Kind of what did we talk about at the beginning? We talked about how this is a book that's meant to give hope to people who are about to or are suffering. And, and, and that this book, and especially these letters written to these seven churches, were, were written uh, to them to inspire greatness in them, and, and a, a kind of greatness that will require more than they could accomplish in and of themselves. Jesus knows what lies ahead for these churches. He knows the suffering that is just days, months, maybe a few years away. And he's writing them words of hope and words of warning to be ready. And it's not just about what Jesus was saying to this specific church at this specific time. We know that, that these, these letters to the seven churches represent what Jesus wants to say to all of us. And so we can't just look at it in the historical context. We have to read it and, and allow it to speak to us. Like, what is it saying to us? Because as the church, we are the way the story of God continues. So what did these people do that caused such a visceral gut reaction from the Savior of the world? What was their problem? 
Well, it was they sought self-sufficiency. And uh, in verse 17, it says this. Jesus is, is speaking to them. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. When we looked at the beginning of the story of God back in the fall, when we looked at Genesis, we saw that dependence was not a consequence of the fall. That dependence was not the result of sin entering the world. In fact, we were designed to be dependent. We were never meant to be self-sufficient. Let me say that again. We were never meant, we were never intended to be self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency is actually the result of believing the lies of the serpent. Believing the lies that God doesn't really want what's best for me that God's withholding from me, that God doesn't want me to be all that I can be, that I can't trust God. In fact, I don't need God because I can be like God. We said that the lie behind every sin in every person's life is the belief that God doesn't love me. And it's that lie that leads us to pursue self-sufficiency, which that makes sense, right? I mean, if you can't trust God, if he truly is a withholding God, if you truly can't be all that you were meant to be, why could we, I mean, how in the world could we depend on him? We have to do it ourselves. And it seems like what Jesus is saying to this church in Laodicea is that that's exactly how they live. That's exactly how they think. I mean, they gather weekly to worship God. They are a church, but they don't need him. They're really just doing fine on their own. And church was really just a weekly practice that was, was maybe good for them, good for the community. But they didn't need it. It wasn't essential. Do you ever feel that way? That you've got it all together? That church is a nice thing to do, but it's, it's not essential? Because you're pretty good. When Jesus says, you say, I'm rich, and I've prospered, and I need nothing. I don't think Jesus, or even the people who were hearing this, were thinking about riches just in terms of material possessions. I think they were also thinking in terms of spiritual riches. That they had done a good job of helping people in the community. They had done a good job of sin management. They had done the good things that good churches do. Jesus had been a good example for them to follow, and they've been doing a good job following that example. But going back to verse 17, he says, But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, this seems so harsh to say to a bunch of church people. People who are doing good things in their community. People who are showing up for worship. I've always struggled with Isaiah 64, 6, which tells us that all of us, all, all of us, when we, when we do acts of righteousness, that they're actually like filthy rags. And that verse has always bothered me. And as I was reading this letter to the church of Laodicea, it bothered me in the same way. And so I really had to wrestle this week with why does that bother me so bad? And what I came up with was this. Because my end, my omega point... If you were here a couple weeks ago when we started part two of the story of God, where we looked at Revelation 1, where Jesus appeared as he's always been. Um, and Jesus said, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. I am the alpha and the omega. We looked at what, what are our omega points? What are the things that we're focused on? What are the things that we're driving towards? I realized that my omega point 
is self-sufficiency, not dependence. Now, I get, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a preacher. I get that I needed Jesus to save me initially. But now that he has, let me do my thing. Let me continue to progressively move towards self-sufficiency. You see, the problem with self-sufficiency isn't just about arriving at some point and thinking, well, now I've got it. Now I'm sufficient and I don't have any needs. But the problem is the pursuit of self-sufficiency as well. Uh, This past week at the Golden Globes, Jim Carrey came out to present the award for Best Comedy. And he was announced as two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And then what he did was just, it was awesome because I think he was making it up on the spot. He just decided he was going to riff on his introduction. And this is what Jim Carrey said. He said, hello, I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm not just a man. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And when I go to bed at night, I go to bed as two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And he said, but when I dream, I dream that I'm three-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And then he said, and then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I can stop this terrible search for what I ultimately know will not satisfy me. But you know, these awards are important. Um, And, you know, it's kind of awkward, but people were laughing and applauding as he was doing this little bit. But you know that the people sitting in that room were thinking, but yeah, but if I win this, I really will know I'm enough. If I lose 20 pounds, if if I can get pregnant, if that boy follows me back on Instagram, if I get that promotion, if I get and stay sober, if I can make a living doing something that I'm actually passionate about, if I can save my failing marriage, if I can make my parents proud. See, what Jim Carrey did at the Golden Globes was profound because he exposed where self-sufficiency leads to a room full of people who are desperate to know that they're enough. And did you know that uh, this past year, Jim Carrey had to face the loss of his girlfriend to suicide? Self-sufficiency is a terrible search for what we ultimately know won't fulfill us, won't satisfy us. So what's our response? How do we become dependent? Well, Jesus tells the people in the church of Laodicea, he tells them to do two things. In verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Again, repentance comes up just like it did last week. If you're here last week, when we looked at the letter to the church in Sardis, Jesus said, repent. And we've spent most of the time talking about what does that look like. And so today, let's look at Jesus's instruction to be zealous. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to be zealous? Well, one commentator said, the definition of zeal in this text is to be a person of one thing. A zealous Christian is one who only sees one thing, who only cares for one thing, lives for only one thing, is swallowed up by only one thing, gets pleasure and joy 
from only one thing. One thing. How does that make you feel? Do you think that's even possible? To be about one thing. Well, an addict will tell you it's very easy to be about one thing if you can choose what that thing is. I know that it's very easy for me to become singularly focused on the approval of people. The commentator went on to say that a zealous Christian does not care whether he lives or dies, whether he is healthy or sick, whether he's rich or poor, popular or hated, whether he gets blame or praise, honor or shame. None of these things really matter. A zealous Christian is one who cares only about one thing, to honor the Savior, to please the Savior, to bring joy to the heart of the one who gave himself for her. Okay. All right, Jesus, I get the repentance thing. Repentance is hard, but it's doable. But the zealous thing, it seems like it's a little bit over the top. But Jesus looks at this church and he doesn't say to them, hey, your lack of zeal isn't optimal. He says, it makes me sick. That's a strong reaction. And I have a strong reaction to his strong reaction. Why? Because I don't really want to be zealous. I don't want to be one of those crazy Christians. I mean... I don't want people to look at me weird or funny. And in fact, as I thought about this, I thought most of us don't want to be known as zealous for anything. We're too cool for that. We're too cynical. I mean, you might say, well, but Zach, you, you kind of don't mind being known for being zealous about Disney. And you're right. And if you hate going to Disney World, if you give me eight hours on a Saturday, I will change you. But other than that, most of us don't want to be known as fanatics or zealous. We want to be known as moderate. And right now, during all this political stuff, and uh, right now you kind of got some extremes coming to the forefront because they're playing to their base. But as soon as we have a Democratic um, candidate and a Republican candidate, everything's going to be about who can talk to the, the moderate people in the country. It's all going to be about that, that demographic, that group of people. Because we all want to be that. We all want to be a moderate Democrat or a moderate Republican. And most of us want to be a moderate Christian. Why? Because fanatics or people who are zealous are rude and insensitive. Because we have images of men, angry men with bullhorns. A fanatic is someone who is so counterproductive because he or she tries to get his opinion across in the most offensive way possible and in doing so does the exact opposite of what is intended. They're, they're oppressive, they're cruel, they're bigoted, they're self-righteous, they're proud. And so as a response to that kind of fanaticism, we want to be moderate. Most of us, if, if someone asks us about our Christianity, we'll probably say something like, well, yeah, Jesus, uh, he's great, and I've had this religious experience with him, but, but don't worry, I'm, like, I'm not one of those Christians. Like, I'm not going to make too big of a deal about it. I'm not going to overdo it. But you see, the problem is, those Christians, those Christian fanatics, they aren't fanatical enough. It's not that they are too zealous. It's that they're not zealous enough. They're not fanatically sensitive like Jesus. They're not fanatically loving or fanatically self-sacrificing or fanatically humble or fanatically wise. 
A person who is truly zealous for Jesus is fanatically like him. Fanatically sold out for the truth because they know the truth will actually set people free. Fanatically wanting to see the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. If you encounter a person that you consider fanatical and he's offensive and rude, that is not a function of that person being zealous for Christ. It's that they're not zealous enough. Because if you're around someone who is truly zealous for Christ, truly about one thing, him, they would make you feel like you matter. They would listen to you. They would care about you. That's why women and children were so drawn to Jesus when he was here on earth. Because in that day, no one cared about women and children. They were disregarded. They were seen as really not worth much. But when they were with Jesus, they felt loved and seen and worthy. And they knew he was going to tell them the truth. Have you ever been around someone like that? And when you walked away, you felt loved and seen and worthy, and you knew that what they told you was true. Are you a person like that? Are we as a church a people like that? Do people, when they encounter us, do they feel loved and seen and heard and know that we're going to tell them the truth? As Jesus was talking to the Laodiceans, reprimanding them. He told them that they were neither hot nor cold. And when he said that, he was actually speaking in a way that they would have immediately understood. Where me as a kid was so confused by that, the people that he was speaking to, they would have known instantly what he meant. And I wanted to talk about this last week, but I didn't get to the, the part of the, the letter that addressed this. But last week we were looking at the letter to the church in Sardis. And I told you that Sardis was a very successful city. It was up on a mountain. It was kind of fortified. So it was a very secure city. Um, and if you go back and you look at Jesus's letter, his words to that city, to the church in that city, he says to them that they've got to be careful because he's going to come like a thief when they least expect it. And you see, the church in Sardis would have immediately known what Jesus was trying to get across to them because they were, they were a fortified city that felt like they were impenetrable, that, that no one could attack them, that no one could seize them. But in their history, they actually were attacked and overtaken by their enemies twice because of their false sense of security. So the minute Jesus told them that, that he would come like a thief, they immediately had a reaction to that. They knew what that felt like. They knew what it felt like to be completely surprised when they felt so secure. So Jesus was relating to them in an emotional way. And he was saying to them, do you remember how that felt? That wasn't good, right? Listen, you don't have to feel like that again. I'm warning you. I'm warning you so that you won't be surprised when I show up because you have become complacent. And here to the Laodiceans, these were a proud people. They were proud people because of their riches and their successes. In fact, there was an earthquake that pretty much decimated the city back in 60 AD. And they refused financial help from the city of Rome because they were a self-made people and they had enough wealth on their own. And so they said, we don't need your help. We can rebuild ourselves. And they were, they were also known for their physicians. They had great physicians and they had actually come up with this salve that, that, that you would put on your eyes that had healing properties. 
And so people from all over traveled to this city to get help from these great doctors. See, they were a city that said, we can take care of ourselves. But they had one glaring weakness as a city. You know what it was? It was their water supply. They had to daily experience disgusting and inferior water. There was a city uh, just north of them called Heropolis. It was about 11 miles north of them, and it was known for its hot springs. People would travel there because those springs were said to have had healing properties. And in fact, it was from these streams that there was an aqueduct that traveled to the city of Laodicea. But by the time the water got to Laodicea, it had gone from being hot to just lukewarm. And not only that, it contained calcium carbonate, which when it was drank without filtration, caused vomiting. So all of a sudden, when Jesus says to these people that you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, they would have immediately known what that was like. They would have immediately got it. They would have immediately known what that experience was like. And then there was another city, Colossae, that was just a few miles um, to the south of them. And it was known for its pure, cold spring water. So the water in Laodicea was neither healing, like the hot springs, nor refreshing, like the cool spring water. See, they would have gotten what Jesus was saying right away. Jesus was speaking to them. He was reprimanding them. He was calling them to something different in a very personal way. He wasn't saying to them, I'd rather you be hot, uh, zealous for me, or cold against me, because that doesn't really make sense. Why in the world would Jesus ever want us to be against him? That's not, that, doesn't even, that doesn't even make sense. How could that be better? What he was saying to them is, you think you have everything you need to be helpful and of use to other people. You think you have no real needs of your own. You think you're self-sufficient to live a life of greatness, but in fact, you are like your water. You are neither healing nor refreshing. Don't you see, you don't just need me to be an example. You need me as your savior. You don't have everything you need. And then he says, all you have to do is ask me. The more I read and reread this seemingly harsh letter, the more I saw Jesus as grace to this church. Because what he was saying to them is, you've got to get this. And I'm going to say it in the most evocative way I can so that you will get this. Because if you don't get this, you're not going to make it. Because the brokenness in this world is too harsh. Because sin and death are too real. Because life is going to hit you in unexpected ways. But if you get this, if you get me, you know that I have overcome sin and death. And what I am building will last forever and ever. And Jesus blatantly tells them, I love you. He looks at this group of people, this church that has said, hey, We've got everything we need. We've got it figured out. We don't really need you. Thank you for setting the example, but we're good from here. And he says to them in verse 19, he says, To those I love, I love you. I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He says, I love you, and I know that the path that you are on, 
to use Jim Carrey's words, is a terrible search for something that ultimately you know will not fulfill you. And I don't know if it's okay to have Jesus quote Jim Carrey, but I just did. Even Jesus' harsh language of saying, I will spit you out, when you put it in the context, it doesn't actually seem that harsh. It seems gracious. Because he didn't say to them, I have spit you out. Instead, he warns them by using an example that they would have not only understood, but actually experienced to themselves. They knew what it was like to taste that lukewarm water and that it would, it would cause their, their stomachs to you know, want to throw up. They, they knew what that meant. So Jesus is being evocative in a way to call about repentance. He's writing a letter to them to change their lukewarm attitude into zealous eagerness for him. My seminary professor, Simon Kistemacher, used to say, grace always precedes condemnation. No one is ever condemned without first rejecting the grace of God. Condemnation does not come first. So if you're feeling bad about what I'm saying, and I feel bad about what I'm saying. I have, all week I felt bad about what I was going to be saying. But if you feel bad, or you feel scared, or you feel like, ah, good, that's a sign that, that grace is actually moving into your heart, that Jesus is actually working. If your heart, if, uh, if, if, if there's no love for Christ, if you aren't a Christian, you can easily write off what I'm saying as being just rhetoric of a crazy Christian. But if you're uneasy, if you're struggling with these words, it means he's working. It means he's saying to you, I love you. That I reprove and discipline those I love. Be zealous and repent. But the grace doesn't just stop there. There's so much grace at the end of this letter. So much grace. In verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand in the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, Jesus, the one who starts off the letter by saying, Your arrogance and your blatant disregard for me make me want to spit you out of my mouth, ends his letter by saying, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. No matter how badly you hurt me, no matter what you do, I'm going to stand here. I'm not going anywhere. So whatever your reaction to Jesus is, he continues to pursue relationship with you. As we're seeing in these letters, he, he pursues us in a way that is so specific and personal. And so whether or not you're responding to what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea or not, he's going to keep pursuing you. He's going to stand at the door and knock and say, all you have to do is let me in. Everything I have said and done has been in pursuit of a relationship with you. He says, I'm asking you, to be zealous for me. But don't you see that I'm zealous for you? No matter how much you resist my warnings, he says, I'm going to continue to pursue you. Grace always precedes condemnation. You will not be condemned without first rejecting the grace of God. 
when you see Jesus give his life for you, how can you respond in any other way but to give yourself to him? And lastly, very last thing he says, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is saying, once he becomes our one thing, once we become utterly fanatical for him, our works are used to build a kingdom of love and peace and joy. And you see, he's not just inviting us to serve him. He's inviting us to serve with him. He says, sit with me on the throne. You want your works to matter? You want your service to matter? You want what you do with your life to matter? Make Jesus the one thing. Um, while Jesus was here on earth, uh, he went to visit the household of Mary and Martha. And probably many of you know the story. And he's there for dinner. And Martha is just running around trying to make everything perfect uh, for this dinner with Jesus. And her, and her baby sister is just sitting at Jesus' feet, just soaking in whatever Jesus says. And she gets so frustrated because she's doing so much. And she goes to Jesus and she said, do you see all I'm doing? And you see what my sister's doing? Please tell her to get up and help me. And Jesus says to, to Martha, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen what is best, and it will not be taken from her. Mary chose Jesus. Mary chose belief over effort, delight over duty, trusting over trying. Before Mary got busy for Jesus, and she did, she did incredible things to bring about the kingdom of God. But before she did any of that, because she knew what would be required of her would be more that she could offer in and of herself, she first sat long enough with Jesus to be zealous about the one thing, him. Have you sat long enough with Jesus to be zealous for him? Have we as a church sat long enough with Jesus to be zealous for him? Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus, I, we want to be people who sit at your feet like Mary. We want to be people who choose the one thing, the one thing that's necessary, the one thing that you promise us cannot be taken away. And Father, forgive us for all the times we've tried to be self-sufficient. We've sought self-sufficiency instead of dependence. We want to be people who daily depend on you for everything. But that's hard and that doesn't make sense and that's so countercultural. But Father, as a church, that's what we want to be. We want to be a church known for our dependence, not on ourselves, but on you, Jesus, and the kingdom that you're building. And we ask that you would, in turn, use us to bring heaven on earth. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen.